TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. I always enjoy bringing you the latest. This is The Scoop. It's The Scoop with Darren Dookie Wolfson from 5 Eyewitness News. And away we go. It is The Scoop podcast here on 1500 AM. Score North. Scorenorth.com. That's score with a K. Hopefully you have the Score North app on your smartphone. We begin the Scoop podcast. This is episode 230, by the way. Talking some twins. Let's catch up with longtime twins front office employee Mike Radcliffe. He's a good friend of the podcast. He has worked for the twins in different roles since 1987. Has his fingerprints all over so many different guys in the organization. Without him, Jorge Polanco isn't signed. Max Kepler. Miguel to know so many others. Let's catch up with Mike Radcliffe. Mike, I know you're really busy with the draft right now. We'll get to some draft talk in just a bit, but let's start with the big league club. We're now past the 40 game mark. You guys have played over 40 games. Is this, in your mind, enough of a sample size to come to the conclusion that you guys are legit, that this isn't slowing down, that you guys are going to be in this thing for the duration of the season? (laughs) I'm just like you. I'm uh, watching it from afar and enjoying it. The results and you know we've got a lot of people put a lot of time and effort into constructing the roster we have and you know we have expectations and and Rocco and the staff doing a great job and so it's just fun to watch I, I'm I'm not uh, it's not my position to get involved in that kind of judgment as to what what we'll do in the future but you know we're uh, we have high expectations and, and I've had them since since the winter and spring training. All right, you're one of the guys that certainly has had a big-time hand in the construction of this roster. Go up and down the 25-man roster. Just lay out for the audience, from Kepler to Polanco to so many guys, Barrio, so many guys that you've had your fingerprints on. Well, it's it's a <laughs> no one person uh, should take credit or blame when construction of a roster. There's lots of people involved. So we do have a, a good mesh of uh, international talent, of draft talent, and players we brought in uh, from outside the organization by using some of the talent and commodities that we got in both the international and the draft process. So, uh, you know, Derek and Thad have done a a great job of of using all the different avenues of acquisition to to put together this roster. And, you know, I think that's, that's important. You know, we've, our professional scouting department, our analytical staff, our international scouts, draft scouts, everybody, as a piece of uh, how we're built at the moment. What exactly is your role, Mike, and how has it evolved now that we're in, what, year three of the Derek and Thad era? Uh, my role hasn't changed much. I'm, I'm an evaluator. I go out to see players, lots of different realms, international draft, uh, through the minor league system, uh, in the major leagues and minor leagues. So n- not much has changed for any of us, really. It's just we've added a lot more uh, people on the analytical side that, you know, help uh, collaborate and, you know, put together our processes. But most of us are, are doing what we've been doing for a long time uh, on, the, on the scouting side of it, evaluating. And, and uh, you know, now we just have more layers and more processes that, that are involved in the decision-making process than we had a few years ago. Do you enjoy more of those layers? I mean, have you learned to embrace or have you always embraced the analytical side? I, you know, that's something that's, uh, you know, it's kind of funny in-house because we've been analytical, per se, for a long time. It's just mm-hmm. there's 
it's way deeper now. There's way more to it. There's way more resources. There's way more information. It, it, it's it's mandatory to have the the people, the the staff, the personnel to uh, tabulate and and analyze the the info. It's just it's almost daunting how much uh, data is available now. So. You know, it's it's just a necessary part of the process for for that to be involved, and obviously you should incorporate it in your decision making. We always did; we just did it at a, at a smaller level with less people and you know less layers. So uh, embrace it's just it's just a part of the evolution. It's just it's we almost look at it as normal. From the outside, it seems like a completely different process because we have so many different people. It's it's the it's basically the same. It's just times 10 or times 20. Uh, we've been using analytics for a long time. It's just there's more of it now to uh, to incorporate into your into your decision making. How much more stuff do you guys have internally compared to all the analytics that is now available on so many different websites? I mean, just for us, the general fan, there's a lot of numbers, a lot of metrics available, but clearly you guys do things differently internally. How much more stuff do you have internally that isn't available to the general public? Well, it's it's pretty amazing. I, I don't know that we have all that much more available, but we have it uh, resourced into our, our internal system that we can get to it in, a, in, a, in an easier fashion. I mean, you can get on the Internet and get about whatever you want. But, you know, we do have uh, the ability through our own in-house processes to to get to that data quicker easier and you know it's more readily available for you to use on a on a daily basis anybody scouts uh, people in the office anybody in in the in the baseball ops department can get to the data much easier now as you look at the twins outfield right now i mean those are three guys that heck i mean you're right it's a team of people but without your input who knows maybe none of the three are here Maybe one of them. Who knows? But how much pride do you take in seeing the success that Max Kepler, Eddie Rosario, and Byron Buxton are currently having? Well, any scout—that's the—that's the reward you have when you're when you see guys get all the way through from the initial uh, select or sign and go through the system, and get to the big leagues. That's that's the that's the reward. Watch them play. Uh, be a big tri- contributing member of your major league team. So you know, all of us have a lot of pride. And those three guys came through different ways. Max, an international guy, uh, Eddie, you know, through the draft, and you know, Byron has his own special, you know, is the number two pick in the draft. They they all have their own background and circumstances, and involve a lot of different people. And uh, you know, it's a lot. Of, not just the scouts, we're, we're at the front of the process, but a lot of people, the player development department, and throughout our throughout our baseball ops, touched all those guys to get them where they're at. On Byron being the number two pick, what was it, the 2012 draft? I mean, were you guys surprised that he did not go number one to the Houston Astros? No, no, we were not. First of all, we knew that they had a little different way of going about their business, you know, how they were going to select and uh, the strategy they were going to use. So, no, in that regard, it was it was unknown right up to the end and and uh, weren't quite sure how they who they would take. And, uh, you know, Byron and, and Correa, both the first two guys, both high school players that had different levels of interest among the, the you know the top ten teams. They were they you know they were going to be selected within that top area, but I don't think anybody knew exactly till till it happened how that order would go. 
And then on Max Kepler, what sort of bidding war was there? I mean, I think about that 2009 international free agency class. I mean, it's him, it's Jorge Polanco, it's Miguel Sano, heck, it's many others. But to have three guys do as well as those three have, but in particular Max, what sort of bidding war was there? I mean, did you have to beat out a bunch of teams for Max? Uh, as as the way that market works, it usually uh, gets pared down to you know a smaller group at the very end, and that that was the case with Max. I think there's actually three teams that were kind of in it at the very end, and uh, um, well, we we were the ones that uh, finished on top. Had that the international market is is a unique thing. You you either win or you finish tied for second with everybody else, and, and we we were able to. To get those three guys in that in that particular year, and uh, you know we had we did Max and Jorge uh, kind of on schedule, and then obviously the Sano situation was unique because because of the circumstances around, and nobody could quite figure out the the age and you know different things going on. It was hard to verify, so his dra- his kind of dragged out for several months past the signing deadline. Is it true that the Yankees were in until the end on both Kepler and Polanco? Yeah, the Yankees were definitely one of the, the finalists for Polanco. Um, in regards to Kepler, I don't really think they were they were involved. They were certainly one of the competitors, but uh, there's a couple of different teams that I think were the finalists with us for Max. I mean, the reason I bring that up is, I mean, everybody thinks about the big, bad Yankees, right? So did it mean even more, I guess, in the case of Polanco, that the Yankees were there until the end? But you convinced him, his trainer, to join you guys, not the Yankees? Well, that, along with Sano, who the Yankees were involved in until the end as well, that, was, that, that ends up being a, almost a seminal moment in you know our history in, in Latin America because we were able to get those two guys in, in the same year. And it, it gives you a whole new uh, position in the market when everybody else sees that you're a player. So... Thanks to you know Mr. Polad for allowing us to pony up uh, for Sano and you know the, the good work that Fred and all our guys did on on Polanco to put us in position to win that battle. You know it ends up being a very important year for us because you know it elevated our status down there in regards to you know being a player for for some of the top guys. You bring up the name Fred. That is Fred Guerrero. Take the audience through what his role has been in signing all these international free agents. Well, he's our point man in Latin America. Period. He, you know, he, we signed him as a as more or less an area scout in in the in the Dominican. But he's uh, progressed and elevated himself to be in our Latin America coordinator now. He's 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 involved with the the choke, you know, watching players and defining who they are through the process of uh, dealing with the agents and figuring out how that's all going to go. And then, you know, he's also a part of helping him progress through the minor league system. He, he lives in Florida now, in Fort Myers. So he's he's with our young guys from the beginning right through their, as they integrate into the minor leagues and go through the system. So Fred's, you know, Fred Guerrero is one of the most important players in our, uh, in all of our scouting, uh, for sure, in our international scouting. We're talking with Mike Radcliffe of the Twins on Rosario. He was a fourth-round pick out of Puerto Rico out of high school in 2010. I mean, did you always have a sense that you'd be able to sign him? I mean, take us through, you know, I guess that pre-draft process up until you guys took him, waiting until the fourth round to select him. Uh, I don't think there's any question about 
defining part is just a question of when and where and, and balancing out the, the risk involved. We had a lot of conviction in this bat, but we had several several of our scouts, namely Hector Otero, Tim O'Neill, that were you know really bullish on on his eventual offensive impact. And you know he's from a, a difficult area, Puerto Rico. There's a, you know his background is is uh is difficult to sort through uh, you know he's had he had a little bit of a tough uh you know early life and you know there was there was some risk involved in in you know just the overall uh projection of you know how he was going to be able to get through everything and you know now as a as, as you know one of our best major league players and productive team member of our of our major league team you know it why, knowing from where he came from and what he had to endure and what he had to get through, it's kind of amazing, the, you know, the long process. And, you know, guys like Hector and Tim and the other scouts who were involved, you know, to to be able to, to see through that and balance out the risk-reward of, of a player's ability versus, you know, some of the things that are uh, part of the process, part of the long journey from when a high school or a international guy signs and there's at the lowest level of a major league organization it's quite a process to uh, get to the finished product that he is now up there you know one of the stalwart hitters in our lineup so i mean but there was doubt i mean what is that balancing act like where okay so he comes from this very was it a tough neighborhood i mean i guess describe where he came from in puerto rico then trying to project i mean you're taking him as what a 17 year old i mean how do you then project what he'll be especially mentally i mean forget physically which is a challenge but also mentally when he's into his 20s well it's difficult it's the hardest thing to do uh, at that age level in the draft and in the international market you have to try to forecast the players physical abilities and talent that they are able to show but you have to piece together the makeup and the intangibles and, you know, the dedication and the work ethic and all those things, because again, they're, it, it's a five, six, seven year process for players at that age. And so it's, it's a long journey and they have to endure a lot of hardship along the way and it can be very difficult. So, you know, you, you give kudos to the scouts who are willing to stick their name on, on those players. And, and, you know, you know then also, to our player development staff for for you know having the patience and you know the abilities to deal with those kind of guys so uh, you know a lot of people you balance that out on every player whether you're taking Byron Buxton at number two in the draft or all the way down through whoever the lowest guy you sign every year is there's that risk reward and that uh, risk value assessment that's made on every single guy and and uh, Rosie's case, it was, you know, other teams had interest and they backed away and we took a shot. So you got to give our guys credit for hanging in there and make, you know, touching him all the way through the process to put him, help him get to where he is now. Jose Barrios is also from Puerto Rico. You guys took him with the 32nd overall pick, late first round of the 2012 draft. Is he from a different part of Puerto Rico? Was a little bit easier to project him or still some. Some hurdles there too, right? I mean, I think a lot of people at the time, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly, there were some people wondering about that pick when you guys took him that high, but lo and behold, he's turned into an ace. Yeah, a different situation. He's a little more high profile, but a lot of circumstances there as well. He didn't have much pitching background. There's not a lot of uh, pitching 
uh, history in Puerto Rico, uh, you know, very few of them. So, you know, taking a player that high, uh, you know, with the limited pitching background that he had and the, the resume of pitchers from Puerto Rico, yeah, I, I you know, there was some uh, risk involved, and I guess the industry <laughs> might be a little, little more than we did. I, again, we give credit to our scouts. That was Hector Quintero again, and and uh, you know all the guys that helped you know figure that one out and on every guy it's a it's a team effort you know you have an area scout that's responsible for each player but there's lots of other scouts as well that touch the process and help move it along and you know help compare different players so that you know at the end of the day you take who you take and i i think at our selection you know at the point of selection we were very confident and very convicted in in jose having the upside that he has, that he still has. He, I, I don't think he's a finished product by any means yet, despite you know the great production he's given our team now. Mike, is all your scouting resources right now, all your time spent scouting for the draft, which is now, I mean, heck, it's pretty much days away. I mean, I guess a couple weeks, but it's less than a month away. It starts, what, June 3rd? Is, is that what is you know taking up all your time right now? Or are you also watching some big league games as – Heck, next thing you know, it'll be trade deadline time, right? And as you guys look to add, I mean, if we think that you guys, and I think you are, heck, maybe you do too, that you guys are going to be in this for the long haul this year, as you guys look to maybe add, in particular, some pitching, whether it's a starter or a reliever, are you also out watching some major league games starting the scouting on the trade front? We have guys doing that. We have guys working every facet, but... Uh, a lot of our focus now uh, in, in the month of May is toward that the, the draft, June three to five draft. So you know, most of our people are, are working, you know, toward that. But we have uh, obviously scouts in the in the uh, professional market as well, gearing up for that. So you know, the calendar does dictate, you know, how we allocate our resources, and you know, some of that will change come June. You guys are picking in the middle of the first round. I forget what pick is it in particular is 13 13 i mean is that a good spot to be in is this a pretty good draft especially near the top as as we look at that 13th pick and of course it always comes down to signability things change how teams want to allocate their their pool of money but is 13 a pretty good pick to have this year you know we're going to tell you we got a great player no matter what pick we well, have of course so, yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> the crop is what it is each and every year it's being defined right now i think we're confident we're we have, uh, you know, some good options. There's some very good college hitters available this year. Uh, there's different parts of the of the uh, crop that you're, you know, there's some depth and and we have belief in. So, you know, we're we're sorting that out right now, and you know that process is ongoing. Um, I'd say there's a real good shot that uh, it'll be an offensive player of some sort because that does seem to be the uh, the first round emphasis this year, maybe. Really? Because there's a bunch of pitchers, too, right? There's a West Virginia kid. There's a Kentucky kid. Aren't there a bunch of college arms available maybe in that 13 range? I wouldn't say a bunch. No, there are a few, yes. But uh, I think the crop is more geared toward uh, bats for the first round or so. And then, you know, we'll see. You never know how it pans out for your particular selection, even though – there might be depth in one area or scarcity in another. It might be just where you're picking is where that guy potentially falls. So it's hard to forecast it when you're 
13, as you said, we're kind of in the middle. It's a little different when you're picking in, in a higher spot. You can be a little more definitive. You guys have three picks in the top 55. You also pick at 39 and 54. So, I mean, is there pretty good depth as we get into, you know, the late 30s, the mid 50s? I mean, I'm just going down, looking at all your picks here, I guess, in the top 100. You also pick where a pick 90. Is that all your picks in the top 100? Is it four picks in the top 100? That's correct. All right. So, I mean, as you look through, I guess, the top 100, maybe even down to 119, as you look at your first four or five picks, I mean, is it a pretty good depth draft where you'll get some good players there? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a little stronger collegiate-wise this year, especially in the first few rounds and normal. And then if you're willing and able and have the, have the capability to take high school guys, which we've always had, there's always depth. You know, some teams don't like to do that, uh, especially in the early rounds. They think the risk is too great. But if you're willing and able to uh, – allow for the have the patience and allow for the development curve of a high school player there's there's always depth so we we don't really concern ourselves with that it's just you know trying to create that uh, the value that on each guy and you know we'll see see how it all plays out it, it's hard to forecast uh past the very early, the very early picks of any draft I'll let you go after this one. I mean, there's a couple pitchers at Stillwater. When it comes to Minnesota kids, I mean, I guess Michael Bush, right, from North Carolina, he went to Simley High School in Invergrove Heights. There's the Walner kid who's from Forest Lake. He's at Southern Mississippi. I mean, I guess those two guys, right, Bush and Walner, have a chance to go pretty high? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're among the college hitters, which, again, we see that as one of the depth areas of the draft. And, uh, you know, again, on the high school pitchers it's you know it just all depends eventually on signability on guys like that so yeah that'll that'll be determined later mike i always appreciate your time yeah good to talk to you hope all's well i always enjoy catching up with mike radcliffe of the twins front office he has worked for the twins in their front office since 1987 matt walner by the way a forest lake of southern mississippi has had some meetings with the astros so the astros are one team certainly showing a good amount of interest in him on bush from simley high school in Invergrove Heights. The word is I had a couple different advisors tell me that Scott Boros is actually advising Bush. Not that that matters a whole lot. The Twins took Royce Lewis. He's a Scott Boros guy. Heck, Alex Kirilov is now a Boros guy. The Twins actually over the years, more so recent years, have actually developed one heck of a working relationship with Scott Boros. Maybe the agent. When talking about all the powerful agents in the game, he would be the guy. We'll shift from baseball to basketball next. We'll talk NBA draft with Fran Fraschilla. Stay with us. Welcome back. It is the Scoop Podcast here on Score North, scorenorth.com. Hopefully you have the Score North app on your smartphone. Let's now talk NBA draft. The Wolves on Tuesday night unfortunately moved down for a 12th time in their lottery history. They've never moved up, so the Wolves were supposed to pick 10th. They will pick 11th in next month's draft. One of the foremost experts on the draft in this entire country is ESPN's Fran Fraschilla, longtime college coach, coached at St. John's among many stops. He now does great work as an analyst for ESPN. He also studies the European game closely. He has great insight on the top European prospects. So let's pick the brain of Fran Fraschilla when it comes specifically to the Wolves pick at number 11. Fran, always appreciate your time. The Wolves pick at 11. Is this a good or bad draft to be picking at pick 11? Oh, well, it's the old story. You know, there's no such thing as a bad bad draft. 
uh, if you pick the right guy, you know, at your spot. And we all know that uh, uh, every time we think that we've got it figured out as to who the best two, three, or four draft picks are, somebody like Pascal Siakam or Draymond Green or so many others end up being way better than we ever thought. So I don't think it's a deep draft. I'll say that, Darren. You know, I think in terms of all-stars, at least from the way I look at it, it stops at four in terms of guys that I think at this point look like they potentially could be all-stars. Hmm. Uh, but there there are a lot of, you know, a lot of guys here who are going to end up fooling the uh, prognosticators and be very good. And so at 11, you know, uh, why not? You know, why not find a guy that's uh, maybe better than we all think, even though we've been watching him in college for a couple of years. The top three seems obvious. I'll pick your brain on who you think that fourth player is. But you brought up the name Pascal Siakam. I was actually swapping messages with, I think somebody you'll remember, Jordan Taylor. Remember Jordan Taylor, the point guard from Wisconsin? He's a Twin Cities kid. He played at Benilde St. Margaret's High School. So anyway, he plays on a team in France with this French player. You can probably pronounce his name. I can't. Sekou Dumbuya. Exactly. Tell us about him. Jordan was telling me, he goes, think about Siakam. I'm just telling you, Fran, what Jordan told me. He goes, think about Siakam. He thinks this kid has a chance to be Siakam. So he goes, hey, if you ever want to talk, talk more in depth. But the Wolves absolutely should be looking at this young man if he's sitting there at pick 11. Well, let me first of all tell you that um, I I love the fact that you talked to Jordan Taylor. As I've covered the international kids for ESPN for these many years, um, one of the things I used to do, was go into my database of people and contacts and try to figure out who was on a team of a international prospect that was an American player that I knew. And that would happen quite often. And I would get great intel from, uh, you know, guys uh, telling me how good Danilo Gallinari would be or, you know, Anis Cantor or many others. And so it's interesting you say that. Sekou is a... Uh, he, uh, first of all, here's the interesting thing people need to know about him. He will be the youngest first-round pick. Mm. He is born on December 23rd, 2000, so he's not going to turn 19 until you know roughly two months into his NBA career. So right off the bat, you're, t- you're looking at a young, big man. When I say big, 6'9", 230. Probably if you had to peg him, you'd say prototypical uh, power forward with uh, stretch four ability. And uh, can shoot the ball, can run the court. Uh, still a work in progress uh, in many ways uh, uh, as far as his basketball development and IQ, but a very nice long-term prospect. And I think, Darren, in a draft like this, if you can't find the surefire, can't-miss guy like the guys that uh, I mentioned at the top, and you'll probably get me to tell – you who my fourth guy is. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. You you have to you have to project out because we're dealing with so many young players in every draft. And so do I I love saying this. Dumbuya is <laughs> a, a kid that has a long-term potential. How good is the league that he's currently playing in? It's a good basketball league. It's not the best league in Europe, but uh, interestingly enough, it's got um it's produced a lot of good pro prospects. You you start with guys like Rudy Gobert hmm. and uh, Evan Fournier. Uh, uh, guy, those two guys come to mind right right off the bat. Obviously, you go back in time, and it's Tony Parker before that. Um, what the French Pro League is, because it's a it's a league. Um, you know, uh, France has had a very liberal immigration policy 
from the former colonies in Africa. So you have a very athletic league. And, uh, you know, uh, as I said, French kids translate well to the NBA. Listening to you talk about him, Fran, I have a sneaky suspicion he will not be there at 11. That somebody, whether it's a pick 8, pick 9, pick 10, you name it, that somebody's going to fall in love with him. He will not be there at pick 11. I, I, I would normally tend to agree with you, uh, Darren, on guys that are late risers because, let's face it, why are they rising? They, they're rising because... NBA teams probably knew all along that they really loved the kid. It was the, it was the mock draft guys that didn't figure it out until late. And uh, Dumbuya could be one of those guys because he is so athletic. But I think there's a 50-50 chance a kid like that could be there. Mm. I really do. And part of it is because um, as good as the NBA has gotten uh, with putting resources in Europe, and, and every team now does a really great job, there's still a little of the element of uh, – hesitancy on, on the part of some teams to take the international kid over the kid from the Big Ten or the or the ACC that they their scouts have seen all year. So uh, I would say it's 50-50 that a kid like that could be still hanging around at, uh, at their pick. Who are some of the other European prospects we should know of? Well, it's, it's a very light year, and there's certainly no Doncic. That one I don't have to explain to people because those guys come around every decade. But uh, another kid I like that I think may even go earlier, and again, you know, the mock the mock draft guys have him anywhere from 12 to 29, is Goga Bitadze. He's a young man uh, from Georgia, uh, former, uh, you know, uh, which was formerly part of the old Soviet Union. Uh, when you think of Georgia and the NBA, you think of Zaza Pachulia. Um, and this young man, Goga Bitadze, is 6'11", 250, uh, a young guy right now he's 20 years old and uh excuse me he's about to turn 20 he's still 19 and um when you look at Goga Bitadze you uh, skilled tough physical and can shoot the three and if you just look around the NBA right now over half of the league has a starting center that's born outside the United States if you look at the final eight teams left I is that right six wow. of the eight yeah. We're international centers. And so Goga is in the mix with a, um, a uh, Yusef Nurkic, a Jokic, an Ennis Cantor. He's that kind of, uh, if not player, because Jokic is certainly, you know, proven to be outstanding, uh, an all-star. Uh, he certainly has the uh, maturity and toughness uh, to be like those guys and make a relatively quick transition to the NBA. Is there some kid, I mean, it's not this draft, but like whether it's 2020, 2021, that has, you know, Doncic, you know, example of, of that sort of buzz frame, yeah. but but somebody over there, I mean, is there some kid from Israel that somebody was telling me about? Actually, I think one of our mutual friends, Tony Ronzoni, was telling me yeah. there's some kid in Israel for the 2020 draft. Is there some kid over there, though, that we should be aware of, you know, kind of store in the well, back of our minds moving forward in the next year or two? Well, listen, nobody knows it better than Tony. There's no question about that. And, uh, the young, the young man he's talking about is, and I'm probably going to get it, he's, he's a kid, uh, Denny uh, Avjeda, who's like, uh, and I probably have said that wrong, but he's a six foot, you know, seven, six foot eight wing player, uh, very talented. Um, but I don't see, I don't really see anybody in the next three to four years, including that young man that Tony mentioned, that has the uh, wow factor of a, uh, of a Doncic, certainly or even the long-term upside 
of say a Dirk or a you know Gasol or, mm-hmm. or a Rubio. Nobody that's come on a scene, let's say, as a 14 or 15 year old, like Doncic did, and we're just waiting for him to marinate. So uh, if there's a guy over there right now, he hasn't really popped up in my eyes. You're there in Chicago, Fran, for this year's combine. Any of the measurements today? Anything? Anything stick out about today's news, if you want to call it news, with with a lot of the measurements coming out? Well, honestly, honestly, Darren, I, I didn't get a chance. I've seen him come off. I've seen him come up on Twitter in bits and pieces, but. I was in and out of meetings today doing some stuff for the NBA, um, visiting with some people. So I didn't really see uh, any of the measurements that, you know, try, you know I, I saw I saw where, um, you know, Bowl Bowl's got a 7-7 wingspan, things that we kind of figured out already. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll take a really good hard look at the measurements uh, when I see them all tomorrow. And um, they definitely matter. You know, I mean, wingspan definitely matters. I know my buddy Jay Billis jokes about it on the air, but uh, – you know, wingspan, wingspan is critical. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a young man that's a freshman at Iowa State from Chicago, Taylor Horton Tucker. Mm-hmm. Unique player. Six foot four. Kind of reminds some of PJ Tucker. He has a seven foot one wingspan. Wow. Now, the average NBA player is somewhere between, between plus four and plus six when it comes to wingspan over his actual height. Mm-hmm. So think about that. 6'4 to 7'1, that's a plus 9. Jeez. On Bowl Bowl, how do you weigh? I mean, I'm not a big fan, Fran, of big men who have had any history of, of a foot injury, foot injuries. In this case, though, I mean, he missed, what, a, a good portion of, of Oregon season with I forget the specific injury, but I think it was a lower body. It was more foot-related. Yeah. But, I mean, you're talking about a 7'2 guy that has legit NBA three-point range. I mean, that's another guy that I think will probably be there pick 11. So, I mean, if you're the Wolves, I mean, I guess you better do a lot of homework on Bowl Bowl. Well, you know, it's a great point because uh, he went to three high schools. Um, it's interesting. You know, you're not, you're not going to question whether he was seriously hurt this year, but there were people that thought he could have come back and played. I don't know if that's true. But he played nine games, and I, I happened to see two of the nine games in New York. And so, um, you know, he's a he's a high risk, high reward pick. You know, at seven foot two, and, and the wingspan, and the ability to shoot threes, and protect the rim with shot blocking, he's interesting. But he's very skinny, very weak lower body, uh, lateral quickness defensively is below average, and he's a conscientious objector on the defensive end as well. Um, so, you know, I, someone's going to take them because they're going to be enticed by the potential and the talent. Uh, I wouldn't be one of those guys myself. All right, tell us who your number four players. I mean, is it obvious that one, two, three, Zion, into Morant, into Barrett? Although, who knows, maybe you like Barrett more than, more than Morant. But who is number four on your board, Fran? Well, you know, to me, it would be uh, Darius Garland. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, he's a guy that... Uh, was the number one high school point guard in the country coming out uh, last year, went to Vandy, stayed home, son of former NBA player Winston Garland, great kid, great student, uh, excellent athlete. I've, I've been around him at numerous uh, camps, and uh, in uh, five games in against Kent State and Torres MCL, I believe he's close to 100%. It's not quite the seriousness of an ACL. And Darius is an explosive six foot three athlete, point guard who can score, uh, uh, can get into the lane, can score in the high paint, can shoot threes, understands pick and roll, 
and will give the ball up. And uh, to me, I see a little bit of Damian Lillard in him. So um, given that Zion Ja, uh, RJ, and I'm going to throw Darius Garland in there as the fourth guy, and that's just my opinion, and then I think you go from there. I do think, in my opinion, there's a little bit of drop-off. We love what DeAndre Hunter did in the NCAA tournament, obviously, at Virginia. Uh, I think he's a good, not great athlete, certainly knows how to play. And um, But I'm not going to get caught up in recency bias, uh, even though he is a great kid who will be a good pro. I just don't see you know uh, high-level or potential all-star out of, out of DeAndre. On Garland, his dad Winston. You brought up Winston. He played. He had a cup of coffee with the Wolves at the latter part of his of his NBA career. I remember covering him in the in the mid nineties. All right, on Nasir Little, I was going to ask you about Cam Reddish, but I don't I don't see a scenario yeah. where Reddish gets to pick eleven. Somebody is going to take him before pick eleven. But on Little from North Carolina, I think there's a I don't know fifty fifty chance, fifty five forty five, sixty forty. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think there's a realistic chance that that he's sitting there pick eleven for the Wolves. How do you evaluate his North Carolina career? Did he even start any games for Roy Williams, Fran? Yeah, it's a good question. I think he might have started later in the year. Although now that I think about it, they were they were pretty stacked up front. You they know? were like they, yeah, they played small at times, which I thought was the way they were going to play before the season. There were times where he did not start, but they ended up playing small ball with Luke May, Cam Johnson, and and uh, Nasir Little. And uh, the thing about Nasir, and I do think it's going to be 50-50 that he's there, um, is he is a kid. He, I don't want to. I don't want to say he's uh, Demar Derozan, but he is in this regard. Um, he is a kid who does not have a jump shot right now. He's a tremendous athlete, plays with a high motor, quality kid, excellent student. And the thing about him is he's he's trying to transition from power forward in high school to an NBA wing player, and he's got to try to do it without a legitimate jump shot right now. You know, when you look at DeMar DeRozan, career 29% from three, you can kind of make that comparison. But at at 11 or 12, um, you're looking at a kid who's young, who's athletic, who's got a high motor, who compete, and if he's willing to get in the gym and get better, I think um, I actually think that's a really safe pick for Minnesota, um, but you know you, I just don't want Wolves fans to think they're getting a finished product right away. I'll hit you with three more, and then I'll let you go. Thoughts yeah. on Brandon Clark of Gonzaga, who's 22. So I mean I don't know if yeah. that factors in. I mean we're talking about the kid from France who doesn't turn 19 until Christmas. I mean he's four years younger than Brandon yes. Clark. But what do you think of Brandon Clark? Well, you know, it's funny. Speaking of measurements, I think today one of the ones I did notice was he measured out at six eight two ten. Now, think about that. He's playing power forward at Gonzaga. I mean, we've got the guys in the NBA who are two guards at six foot eight two ten, but really more more accurately small forward types, right? That's the prototype. He only weighs two ten, so Fran. Really? Two ten. That's what I saw. I'm Holy sure. cow! Now, he was listed at two fifteen. Now, in watching him on tape. You love his athleticism. He's an absolute pogo stick. And he did shoot over 70% from the field, but essentially all dunks. When I evaluated Brandon watching tape, especially against high-level talent, and when you look at Gonzaga, that means NCAA tournament games and games versus North Carolina and Duke, particularly in the non-conference, I saw a guy who struggled to score at the rim 
uh, as a guy that is a is a you know essentially an inside player. So I love his athleticism. I've got to wait. I just don't know how it's going to translate. He's the guy that we all always say high motor, low skill level, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's guys in the league that are that way. You look at Montrez Harrell comes to mind, perfect example. I just think at 210, 215 pounds, that would get me nervous if I was going to stick him on the court, having to battle against the guys he'll have to battle next year in a, let's face it, a league with, uh, you know, big, rough, rough, t- uh, you know, uh, tough guys. I didn't realize he only weighed that, Fran. I think you talked me off the. The Clark bandwagon. I was on it right after the lottery. Once we saw that the Wolves were picking 11, I threw on Twitter. Yep. I'm like, I'd be okay with Brandon Clark. i got to do more homework on Clark. I thought I had done my homework. I didn't realize, well, though, Fran, he's only – Yeah, oh. I mean, I'm Googling it, 215. So, I'm, yeah, I'm sure he weighed in at 210 there in, in Chicago. That just – that blows me away. All right, Tyler Hero of Kentucky. Okay, we know he's a great shooter, maybe the yeah. best shooter in the draft. But is there more to his game that you could justify taking him as high as pick 11? Nope, can't do it. Uh, watched him play against, uh, you know, I, I specifically look to watch for games against athletes in the SEC. If you go back and watch his game against Tennessee in the, in the SEC semifinals, if I'm not mistaken, he had a shot blocked uh, three times, jump shot blocked three different times. Um, and I, I think that's where it hurts him. Uh, now, he is a, he's a great kid. He's got supreme confidence. And he's going to be a very good shooter when open and not quite in the JJ Reddick realm, not even close. I just think, you know, we're looking, we're looking at his athleticism and I just right now don't see what would be necessary for him to make an impact as an NBA player, at least early in his career. To me, he's a project. Uh, he's not even, he's not yet a rotation guy. Fringe, we're talking some G League time. Uh, I wish I could say Kevin Herter, but uh, I think Kevin is, is bigger, more athletic. I'll leave you with this. Amir Coffey, I don't think it's realistic, Fran, that he gets drafted, but I was told he had a really good workout recently for the L.A. Clippers. He's had some other workouts as well, the Warriors, the Spurs, the Nets. How do you balance if you're Amir, Fran, coming yeah. back to the U for your senior year? But I think it's realistic that he could get a two-way contract. So how do you balance that? Do you, do you keep your is. name in the draft, or do you go back to the U? Well, I think that's a good, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a discussion I've had with a number of friends in, uh, in the Twin Cities. And here's why I think it matters. Uh, first of all, it's a great family. And obviously his dad played in the league. Uh, and I actually coached against his dad when I was a young assistant at Ohio State. But, um, I think this is where they have to utilize, um, the NBA teams to tell them exactly where they see his future right now. Now, that may change uh, after next year, um, even though we know that the NBA you know, would, would rather have a younger player. But it, it worked for guys like Buddy Heald, you know, as, uh, just to name, name somebody. Um, I think what's got to happen with Amir and the family, they've got to get accurate information from teams. They've got to be able to tell him, look, um, if there's three or four teams that say, absolutely, we're taking you in the second round, and I think you can go to school on that. If not, then you're rolling the dice, um, even if he's not drafted in the second round. And I do believe there's a spot for him somewhere in the second round, especially the way he played uh, at the end of the season. Then he's going to do the G League two-way, you know, up and down, back and forth. 
And now when, he, when he's 24, 25, we might be looking at an NBA player. I couldn't tell the family in good conscience exactly what to do um, because if there's a second-round opportunity there, it might be the way to go. But uh, if they don't get that kind of promise, I just think it makes sense to come back and try to become an All-American next year and raise your stock. But what if you don't? I mean, what if you don't make threes at a certain clip? I mean, it yep. could go the other way, right? I mean, there could be – it could fall off the other way, right, Fran, if he comes back for a senior year yep. and it just doesn't even come close to matching his junior year? Well, I think the thing you'd have to – you know, you, Darren, you're absolutely right. There's no question about that. But I think the thing that would give me some confidence if I were, you know, uh, Amir and his family is simply that we saw uh, – you know, again, we saw a little higher level from him, and he's always been solid. He's always been a good college player, there's no doubt. Obviously, great high school player, staying home. But I, I do think you have to go to school on the fact that when you look at, uh, you know, the end of his career, 27 against Michigan, you know, he was in the 30s, and if you look at, you know, 31, 32, 23, 21, there's definitely an upward trajectory. So whether it pays off now with a second-round opportunity or coming back and kind of taking that a step further, I think that's going to be the toughest decision. And I think that decision is going to have to be an educated, informed one by them getting really good, accurate information from teams. And I, I think teams will do that for them. Fran, I always appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Darren. Glad we could catch up. ESPN's Fran Fraschilla, former college basketball coach, now analyst for ESPN, does a lot of draft work as well, covers so many college games. ESPN's Fran Fraschilla on the NBA draft next month. The Wolves have pick 11. When we come back here on the Scoop podcast, I'll empty out my notebook. It will include some notes on the Wolves. We return here on Score North, scorenorth.com. Hopefully you have the Score North app. It is the Scoop podcast on this Friday night. Here are some of the prospects the Wolves met with in Chicago at the Combine. These are now publicly released. The Wolves interviewed up to 20 draft prospects the last couple days. I have a partial list. Here are some of the names that they interviewed. Keldon Johnson of Kentucky, Jonte Porter of Missouri, Romeo Langford of Indiana, Daniel Gafford of Arkansas, P.J. Washington of Kentucky, Kevin Porter Jr. of USC, and Brandon Clark of Gonzaga. Speaking of Clark, he's been mocked a lot to the Wolves at pick 11. He will work out for the Wolves at Mayo Clinic Square in mid-June. The Wolves will also get a look at him coming up here in the next couple weeks at his agency's pro day. The Wolves were not one of the teams to interview Amir Coffey of the Gophers, former Hopkins high school star. He took part earlier this week in Chicago at the G League Invitational. He did, though, meet with nine teams. These nine teams. The Celtics, the Heat, the Magic, the Thunder, the Pelicans, the Hawks, the Cavs, the Nuggets, and Hornets. He has worked out for the Clippers. I hear his Clippers workout went very well. He's worked out for the Rockets. He's worked out for the Warriors, the Spurs, and the Nets. Amir still has a couple weeks to decide. Does he go back to the U for his senior year or keep his name in the draft, forego his senior year of eligibility? I'm just saying him taking a two-way contract should not be dismissed. Some notes on guys we know that are for sure former Gophers. Dupree McBrayer will work out for some NBA scouts in New York.
York City next week through his agency. And Jordan Murphy continues to train in New York City under the guidance of his agent. And he's already had workouts with the Memphis Grizzlies and the Wolves. One other draft note, Minneapolis native Reed Travis, most recently with the Kentucky Wildcats. He has his pro day through his agency in Phoenix next Wednesday. On the Wolves' so-called coaching search, I have had a couple people tell me, yeah, this is a legit coaching search. It's not a foregone conclusion that Ryan Saunders will get the job. My money is still on Ryan getting the job. I can tell you Dave Yeager has not been contacted, nor has J.B. Bickerstaff, the former Gopher, former Wolves assistant coach, former Wolves broadcaster. J.B. has all sorts of ties to the Twin Cities. I can tell you that J.B. should decide on where he'll be working here in the coming days. He has an offer from the Cleveland Cavaliers. He has an offer from his buddy Luke Walton. Him and Luke are incredibly close. He has an offer to join Luke's staff in Sacramento. The Celtics and the Sixers have also made some contact with J.B., but it looks like it's down to the Kings and the Cavs. On the Vikings, Eric Hendricks restructuring his contract is more like a band-aid. The Vikings still need to create some cap space. In fact, a couple million dollars of cap space minimum over the next few months. I would still keep an eye on Kyle Rudolph. But what I can tell you on Kyle is offensive coordinator Kevin Stefanski absolutely wants Kyle here. Then you think about the pressure Mike Zimmer and Rick Spielman are facing this year. Does it make sense to kick a guy that can still help you to the curb? That remains to be seen. Now Kyle will not take a pay cut. He is absolutely not taking a pay cut. Would the Vikings outright release him? Could they still revisit extension talks? My understanding is the two sides never came even remotely close to an extension. They were not in the same stratosphere. So unless Rudolph budges a ton, It's hard for me to see the Vikings budging a ton. So unless Rudolph budges a ton, it's hard for me to see the Vikings extending Rudolph. Is there a trade market? Potentially. But the team that trades for him, if it came to that, would want to sign him to an extension. I don't foresee any team just taking on his 2019 contract. I still think because Stefanski wants him, because there's so much pressure on Zimmer, on Spielman, I would hope that they can find a way to keep Rudolph here. But I'm just telling you, that is still a guy, his situation, that I would absolutely monitor because the Vikings still need to create cap space. Up against the clock, but quickly on the Twins, they have had an advanced scout watch the Giants. Whether that's Madison Bumgarner or any number of Giants relievers, the thought is the Giants will be sellers at some point this summer. I am positive the Twins will add maybe more so to the bullpen versus the starting rotation, but I think they're open-minded to adding maybe even multiple pieces as we get closer to the July 31st trade deadline, but I thought it was at least noteworthy to make mention of the Twins have had at least one scout watch the Giants, and I'm telling you, I would bet on the Twins adding at least one, if not multiple multiple arms this summer. We are done. That does it for Scoop Podcast episode 230.